On February 8, 2017, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a talk titled, Stories and Statistics, Why We Need Mixed Methods to Understand International Development. Panelists included Dan Levy, Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at HKS and Faculty Chair of Slate, and Stephen Kosak, Associate Professor at the University of Washington and a Senior Research Fellow with the Ash Center. This talk was moderated by Arkan Fung, Ford Foundation Professor of Democracy and Citizenship and Academic Dean of HKS. This event was co-sponsored by the Center for International Development and the Institute for Quantitative Social Sciences. So I'm just going to spend a few minutes uh, laying out the setting the scene for the project so you understand the context. And then we'll have the uh, exciting, contentious part of the discussion, which is our two champions here of very different ways of looking at and understanding the world. The statistician, the best teacher of statistics at the mm -hmm. Kennedy School, Dan Levy, and uh, standing in, he's not ignorant of statistics, but this afternoon, <laughs> he is representing a different perspective, which is the qualitative part of the project and indeed of social science. Um, the subject for this afternoon, and again, it's a little bit weird because we're at the midpoint of the transparency for, well, a little bit past the midpoint for, of the Transparency Development for Development Project, so we don't have very many results to present <coughs> for you. Uh, so it's not really a findings kind of thing. We don't really have so many findings yet. It's a mid-course talk about how we got to where we are and how we're using these different approaches to examine the intervention that we uh, set out to implement. And so when we come back in three years, there should be eight times as many people because we'll actually have the punchline for what our project <coughs> did. But what we set out to do and what we're going to talk about this afternoon is uh, to try to understand how mixed methods can work together to develop a more holistic understanding of what happens in international uh, development, in uh, development interventions, um, in particular in maternal and newborn health. And so uh, today we're going to talk about a couple of things. First, how we design the intervention, which I think has a lot of interesting lessons and bumps in the road for it in it. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how the two methods can help to understand uh, some of the results that will come in and then some of which are coming in. Okay, so the issue that the T4D project seeks to understand is um, we begin with the presumption that health services in many developing countries underperform in ways that are difficult to fix either with technical fixes that is just some straight up policy prescription that, that somebody then implements, or with simply additional resources. And the project uh, begins with the hypothesis, that, uh, the strong hypothesis, that deeper citizen engagement may be able to help out. First, in a local, from a no local knowledge perspective, citizens may know better what the problem is. And then also from a distinctive resource perspective, that citizens may be able to do things that other actors in the local health system cannot do. Um, OK, now the question that we'll be able to answer with a little bit more precision in a couple of years is, can our particular, did our particular intervention, will our particular intervention have empowered citizens to effectively improve maternal and newborn health outcomes. And so there's a lot of distance between that outcome and our intervention. And that's what I'll go into now. OK. 
So this is basically what our intervention looks like. And the scope of our intervention is that uh, the intervention that I'm going to describe is being, has been, largely has been implemented in 100 villages in Indonesia and 100 villages in Tanzania. And in each, we have 100 control uh, places as well. Right? So it's, a, it's an RCT uh, that's pretty large scale, um, maternal and newborn health, 100-100 uh, in the intervention groups, and then 100-100 in the control groups. Um, OK, so here's what the intervention looks like. Uh, there's, uh, we've worked with local uh, uh, community-based organizations to identify uh, both people to collect data about facilities and then to work with communities, these 100, uh, communities, these 100 and 100 communities, to do a couple of things. First, uh, the CSOs collect data about the local health facility and local health conditions and develop a scorecard. And then they have several meetings with the people in the communities. The first is a meeting to go over the data. Then there's a social action planning meeting in which uh, a facilitator in each of these places leads the community through a social planning exercise in which they say, OK, here's the data. Here are several uh, things that you might do to improve maternal and newborn health in your community. And then they engage in a discussion about what kinds of things that they might do to improve maternal and newborn health. And I think Steve might kind of go into some of, we have a lot of data now about what they actually decided, planned to do. Uh, each community, what was the average number of actions that each community took? Something like seven. Seven actions in each community. Um, and they range a lot from education campaigns to convince moms to deliver, would be future moms, to deliver in facilities, to uh, building new facilities, to sometimes uh, advocating for improvements to health services, sometimes to challenging local health officials. right? Uh, and then uh, there's an implementation phase in which the facilitators try to uh, uh, facilitate the implementation of these social action plans. And then there are follow-up meetings at 30, 60, and 90 days. So uh, one way to think about this intervention is it's fairly, I think it's fairly intense for interventions of this kind with regard to, you know, the treatment is fairly powerful compared to a Svensson and Borkman intervention that was a very famous intervention in Uganda that, that had big effects. It's fair, the treatment is fairly intense I think for this kind of thing, right? But, uh, but if your benchmark is community organizing, this is a very, very light treatment, right? It's compared to an organic community organization like the MKSS in Rajasthan, right? They were, this is a joke. This is nothing like that level of intensity or depth or exposure. So it's kind of in between those two, right? So that's, that's the intervention. Now, um, one thing you should note that this is very, very different from most randomized controlled trials. And we got a lot of pushback from people who do RCTs in most places because the part of the design of the intervention is to let people in the community choose the intervention, right? So you could, uh, so you know, we could be a community 
and uh, Dan presents this menu of what you might do, you say, I want A, or I don't like any of those things. I'm going to make up some other action that we think will be better and more effective or more appropriate for us, right? Now, a bunch of people who uh, we talked to early on in the project who've done many, many RCTs said, that's a crazy way to go. Now, why is that a crazy way to go? That's like running an experiment about seeing if uh, people eating at McDonald's lose weight and allowing them to choose whatever's on the menu, right? You choose salad, I choose french fries, you choose a Big Mac, and at the end of the experiment, we do the average of everybody's weight after the, exper uh, the, after the intervention and before the experiment. Well, if you do it that way, you can't tell whether the salad or the Big Mac or the french fries actually did the work, right? And, and we said, well, Yes, that's true. You won't be able to tell whether it's building a new health facility or organizing moms to go uh, deliver at the facility that did the work. You just won't be able to tell because people choose. And we'll bite the bullet on that, right? So the average effect is certainly going to be uh, much, much more diffuse than if we had made everybody do the same thing. But guess what? In the real world, if you organize community health interventions, you cannot get everybody to do the same thing. And if you try to get everybody to do the same thing, they'll probably hate you for it. So that's why we're biting the bullet on that one. But you should note that in that regard, it's very different from most RCT designs. And that's because we're less interested in what particular technical fix will make the difference for M&H improvement. And indeed, uh, I think the team differs on this, but it's my belief that there is no general fix that's appropriate for all 200 villages spread out across Tanzania and Indonesia, and so that local knowledge is one of the things, as well as local commitment, that is one of the things that will be the special sauce for the result if we see one. Okay, now, the evaluation. Um, we're gathering just a ton of information, and um, we're, uh, we won't be able to use all of it in you know kind of a super uh, kind of coordinated way. These uh, these different sources of information will uh, allow us to piece together what happened in very very different ways. But uh, much of the information is quantitative, growing out of the uh, baseline assessments and the, the uh, post assessments from the randomized control trials, and much of the information is qualitative in nature. So. Uh, for all 100, uh, for all 200, no, for all 400 places, we have baseline surveys uh, of households, of facility, and at the community level, and we'll do endline surveys at all three levels as well, right? So we'll have a ton of pre-post information on both the controls um, and the uh, intervention, the treatment uh, villages. And then we'll have a ton of qualitative information, definitely not of all 200 uh, treatment or, or all 400 in the experiment. We have to you know, be much, much more selective about, especially of the ethnographies. We'll, we'll only have a few dozen places in the ethnographies, but we'll have all sorts of qualitative information, including already a ton of direct meeting observations that, uh, that are both kind of uh, attempt to capture the flow of deliberation and planning. We have empowerment surveys that are uh, a little bit more subjective in nature. We have these social action plans, which capture what people planned to do. We have facilitator reports about what they planned to do and then what they actually did. 
And then we also have different kinds of, of uh, qualitative surveys. So we have a lot of uh, survey information there. Now, this is the logic model. And I think it's probably pretty clear already from uh, what I've said about how we, we hope the uh, information plus the facilitated discussion on the input end of the logic model will result in improved maternal and newborn health outcomes on the output side, right? So the idea is people get information, which is the transparency part of the intervention, and facilitated discussion, which is the participation part of the discussion. We reject the notion that if you only provide information to people that they'll somehow automatically act on it. We think that you need to pump, pump the prime a little bit and facilitate a public discussion about that information, right? And then they, uh, they plan, they plan social actions based on both the information and the public deliberation. They act uh, in according to the social action plans. And we uh, hope to see intermediate outcomes uh, like increased knowledge of uh, what to do, but also the conditions of uh, health services in these places, improve relationships between the frontline providers and the patients, and uh, hopefully improve facilities, although that, that's a, a little bit uh, tougher. Um, another uh, set of outcomes that's closer to the health outcome but not quite there yet is uh, increased utilization of facilities and improved healthcare quality in the facilities. And then hope will, uh, that, those things will hopefully result in improved maternal and newborn health outcomes, which um, it will admittedly be, uh, uh, hopefully we'll be able to, te to detect it, but um, these things are often difficult to detect, right? And all of this, the first part of the chain here relies on citizen empowerment through information and participation. Okay, now to the discussion uh, part of the program. So now we have, uh, as I mentioned, representatives of uh, two different branches, at least for this afternoon. They're both very, very interdisciplinary people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be working so closely together and with the rest of the T4D team. But this, uh, for this afternoon, we'll force them into separate corners uh, with Steve representing the qualitative uh, part of the discussion and Dan representing the quantitative. And so we thought it would be useful to break the discussion into two different pieces. The first being about the design of the intervention, and then the second about uh, how mixed methods might be uh, useful in interpreting some of the outcomes and the data. Okay, so I already indicated a little bit how the um, the mixed method nature of this approach already presents some differences from how you would design an intervention if you were just doing a straight up RCT. Um, there are many, many other kind of wrinkles. Uh, all along, everybody on the team has said that it's much, much more important to think about an effective intervention that would address M&H than to design a, for the thing that would generate the cleanest research output, right? Um, I think it's, it's also a little bit uh, distinctive for us to be much, much more interested in the, the right-hand side than the, the cleanness of the design per se. We thought, well, if it, if it costs us on the cleanness of the design, well, it'll just cost us and we'll, we'll work through that. The important thing is to um, have an intervention that makes sense rather than one that's easy to study. Okay, so um, maybe we could begin with uh, 
Dan and then Steve talking a little bit about how the differences in approach created tensions or problems or challenges in the design process. And maybe talk a little bit about the design process in articulating that. I'll sit down. Um, so I think Arkun described already some of the tensions that came out. I'm an economist by training, and I think one tension that came up right from the beginning with the rest of the team is that I'm very skeptical by nature uh, in terms of <laughs> uh, the likely effectiveness of interventions. I've been doing evaluations of uh, development programs for um, almost 20 years now. And one thing that I've concluded is that all the development programs that I've looked at uh, all have great intentions of improving development outcomes. But those good intentions don't always translate into good outcomes. So um, uh, I, I want to make this a little bit personal so we have an entertaining afternoon. Uh, Steve is a little bit more of an optimist, and we're all <laughs> going to get together. And the community is going to come together and generate <laughs> all this diet. It's going to be great and generate all these nice, out nice outcomes. And I'm a little bit more uh, skeptical. Uh, <laughs> now, we got together uh, to, for the purposes of doing this. But I think one natural tension that, that happened from the, from the get-go was uh, kind of my insistence of, all right, we need to see whether this translates into these uh, final outcomes. Um, I think Art can describe a very uh, important tension uh, coming into this project. Uh, we all, all the team assumed the notion that the intervention should drive the evaluation and not the other way around. And I thought before this project, I thought that mantra I had followed most of my life. But this project stretched me quite a bit to the limit of what that meant. I still <laughs> remember discussions in which uh, Steve and to some extent Arkun uh, were proposing that we didn't even specify which outcomes the community was trying to affect. And I was like, okay, it's okay to be open, but I, we can't do an RCT if we don't know what outcomes we're going to measure uh, at the end. And so that's kind of one uh, set of tensions that we had at the design stage uh, of the evaluation. If I had to de define it a little bit, you know, obsession with impact versus uh, what Steve will describe now. And the second one, the open nature of the intervention, as, as Arkun mentioned, is one in which a typical RCT person would not feel comfortable at all. Uh, the notion that you just let the communities uh, decide on what to do uh, means that at the end of this intervention, it's going to be very hard to know whether it's this action or that other action that caused the outcome. So I'm going to pause here and let Steve react to that. That was a good way to frame it. And I guess, um, although I am the optimist on the team, I guess I'm a skeptic in a different way. I'm a skeptic of oh, the RCTs. You're a skeptic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think one thing that's been interesting in this project is to see uh, the value of RCTs in a way that I would never have guessed initially. Um, rather than that, I'm a, I'm a skeptic of one-size-fits-all approaches. And I think that one of the things you mentioned earlier about the failure of a lot of these programs is that they do try to take the pill approach. We're looking for this pill that's going to solve a disease, even though in this case, some places, 
don't have a disease. In many cases, the problem is very different in different places. So I'm a skeptic of one-size-fits-all approaches. I think that this probably comes partly from my disciplinary background as a political scientist, where um, there's a lot of skepticism, especially when it comes to community engagement work, around one, that it should look the same everywhere, and two, that any kind of outsider here, DC, even in the capital of these countries, has more idea of what needs to happen in order to fix problems than the people who live in these places. And I think there's good research within this particular, there's a kind of sub-discipline here that we're talking about. It's called transparency and accountability. Within that field, there's a lot of research that has demonstrated pretty conclusively that um, externally induced participation doesn't tend to work. It's, orga it's only organic. Organic participation works quite well. And um, you know, we're all uh, around here big fans of it. But uh, when it comes to an outsider trying to, to do it, it, it's, it runs into a lot of problems. And more broadly, within the field of development, there's lots of reason for skepticism about the role of outsiders in uh, work of folks that I know you've all uh, seen in, in classes here, uh, James Scott, you know, trying to understand the uh, what even people who seem like they're pretty well, um, not, not doing very well, need is very tough, and you can often get uh, in the way of, of it just by trying. Um, there's also skeptics of kind of foreign intervention in general, like uh, William Easterly, who's gone and done some good work, you know, trying to understand whether the assumptions that we in the West know what a developing country should do is uh, very uh, infrequently borne out. So, uh, you know, I think one thing we really, uh, this, this creates a lot of tension in, in how do you create a, an intervention that is, one, it's, it's standardized enough that it can be an RCT, it can be RC, uh, evaluated with an RCT, but two, it limits itself to just the things that good evidence suggests are truly helpful and are things that uh, we can say at, at least does not harm in, in delivering them to a community and, and you know, there's very likely to be benefit. So you know, things about which there's pretty good medical consensus in, in the West that they will help. Um, even there, you might say, well, I'm not sure it's going to help everywhere, but you know, at least it's probably not a harm, harmful thing to, to say, you know, it's, it might be helpful for women to deliver a baby in a facility. Um, it might not also be help, harmful to have a discussion about if, if there is a perception in this community that um, there are problems with paternal and newborn health, what is it that we might do about it? Um, and try to think about um, actions that might solve some of those problems. But when it comes to recommending any particular kind of action, um, any particular kind of approach even, I think that's where um, we run into trouble with trying to to um, think that we could recommend something that would work. Right. And I think you know this is really the the difficulty because that is not the way a typical RCT would be done. Right. So, so um, I guess what we're trying to convey and uh, get into in the you know kind of tee up this discussion for a little bit is exactly how much tension there is. And the answer is a lot, right? I mean, you often think of a, a super ver superficial version of mixed methods is, OK, we're going to do an RCT, and then we'll hire some ethnographers to go look at some of the places where the RCT happened. And we, we did that. We're doing that, right? But it actually goes much, much deeper than that if you take 
both approaches seriously, right? So another title for the, the discussion tonight would be, you know, might be, what if Jim Scott designed an RCT, right? The idea that somebody with a deep, deep commitment to local knowledge and metis being the thing that makes it all happen, married to a commitment that you could evaluate an action, an intervention across a lot of places at the same time. It seems like those two things are oil and water, but that is in a way what this project is trying to do. And we might return in the discussion to uh, the idea of this open menu as just one design choice for people to think about, well, do I think about that as a compromise and I'm really losing a bit on both? Or do I think about it as a way of getting the best of both and, and the uh, whole being greater than the sum of its parts? I think it's a good question. It remains to be seen in our project, I think. Good. Yeah. I think one, um, um, so I, I was completely new to this area uh, when I came into the project. Um, and I, there's a part of this that uh, I, I kind of was very natural to me, the notion that we can design clinically an intervention from Cambridge, Massachusetts that would work in rural villages in Indonesia and Tanzania was intuitively uh, sort of nice, uh, it was reasonable to me. Um, but, but this, even if you find that intuitive, uh, doing it is <laughs> the version that that uh, I think we agreed to do and we did is one that that does require a lot of trust in communities not only finding the right solution to their problems but then going and acting on that uh, solution so when we are getting now the results of the um, or the reports on what the, the different communities decided to do, uh, I sometimes get nervous with seeing some of the actions. I'm like, well, and how is this going to lead to that outcome there? And I think that's a tension that uh, is inherent to uh, really taking serious the notion that the community decides uh, what is uh, best for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, and I think it, al it also puts a lot of, maybe not coincidentally, uh, puts a lot of onus on the other approaches to the evaluation that we're taking. So, you know, the, RC I, the way I like to think of it, you know, we, we named this event Stories and Statistics, right? And statistics is the stand-in for, uh, for RCTs, and the stories is supposed to be qualitative, but obviously the spectrum. And... You could think of one end as the, the RCT is the emphasis is on consistency and very particular measurement of an average effect, right? So you're really trying to be very clear that you have high degree of confidence that something that you did caused an effect. You know, maybe 95% confidence, 99% confidence. And you get that confidence through randomly selecting the places so that you can deal with all the other factors. I thought you got that confidence out of the arrogance of the economy. <laughs> that is not a okay. small ingredient. Okay. In <laughs> I got it. Just kidding. So that, but the, the story is the other, completely the other side. The, the emphasis is on the depth of the understanding and uh, the variation between the communities that did this. And trying to understand that um, so that every, every community is, is unique, but there are areas in which 
things are similar between them. There are areas in which they will have done similar things. And the qualitative part of our work is trying to understand the full range of that variation. So it's the difference between very clearly specifying the causal effect on average with a high degree of confidence and being able to understand the full range of variation. And because of the kind of project we have, it, it, it does seem like initially that might have been a tension, but it has ended up being very complementary. Mm -hmm. Good. So, um, Steve, I wonder if you could back up a little bit and tell people, I think the the RCT, the quantitative data sources, are pretty clear to people just from the short description, but probably less so the qualitative data sources. Yeah. Why don't you explain like two or three of the qualitative data sources to give people a sense of sure. what we're bringing into yeah, the I'm picture sure. here? We, Do you want to flip over the other Use a couple tab? of visual aids here. Do we have this as well? There Steve. you go. There we go. There okay. you go. The onion. So <laughs> we're back we with spent a lot of time together. <laughs> So back when we were first developing these methods, we um, came up with this onion as a kind of visual representation of all the different techniques. Um, going from the, the most specific to the, to the most general. So the, the, la the layers here just show the different kinds of techniques we're using. So the, the outer layer, layer one, is all the RCT communities. And Sure. Right. Our, our, I, I shouldn't be the one, but maybe this is a good test. <laughs> we'll test how much good right. five years of us being together <laughs> did to you. How much it sunk in. Exactly. So RCT is a randomized a controlled trial. All right. So you, yeah. So this is uh, you randomly select a hundred places in our case. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So he's a medical doctor. He knows what that means. Okay. Good. <laughs> So as a part of that, we have a lot of surveys uh, from those ICTs. We'll have the baseline, we'll have the end line, we'll be able to look at changing effects and average effects between treatment and control communities. And then we've also got some reports from the facilitators, and we've got what these communities plan to do. And then uh, for uh, very smaller samples of the communities, we're doing a lot more. So for 40 of the communities, we're going to do structured observation. We did structured observation of the meeting to understand things like how did the communities understand the information? Did it resonate with them? Were they surprised with it? Was there disagreement? Was there domination by any particular group? In addition, we did inf key informant interviews. We interviewed a lot of the participants as well as people that they talked to later on to see how they experienced the whole thing and whether uh, the actions that folks reported doing or planned to do in the social action plans actually happened. For an even smaller sample, about 20 communities, uh, we looked at um, how people in the intervention actually participated in it. So let me show you an example here of what we did. So we had a seating chart where we said, well, this is where everybody's seating, seated, seating. And then we uh, made a tick mark every time everybody talked um, discreetly or kind of uh, in, um, in a way that was different from the rest of the crowd. And then we made marks for every time somebody volunteered to do an activity or was assigned to do an activity. And so we know a lot about how each individual participated. And we can do things with this, like understand was there elite domination in the, uh, in the meetings? Was it the case that men did all the talking and women did all the activities, or vice versa? Um, was it the case that the, um, those who were from more elite backgrounds uh, tended to be more involved or not. Then um, 
We also did a survey of everyone before and after the intervention. We gave them a series of vignettes. I'm not going to go through too much of this, but basically three stories about people who were facing a problem in a different area, education, and tried to tackle it um, with varying degrees of success. Okay, let, let's not read this too far into it, but um, by looking at this, we can see before and after, was there a change in people's, by seeing what story participants most identified with, we can see whether they were feeling more empowered after going through the process or not. Uh, then we also did uh, network analysis. So we looked at, uh, for each participant, the people that they typically talk to when they are dealing with any kind of problem in their community. And we can map this to see what's the overlap. So is everybody kind of in the same problem-solving network, which can be particularly important in areas, in communities where there's a big cleavage, right? Is it just from one side? Are we getting a mix? Um, and then finally, all of these techniques are pretty deductive, okay? They're, they're based on things that we would anticipate in advance might play a role, and so we thought to ask about. But a big deal here is how tough it is to know everything that you need to know as an outsider. So in a smaller sample of communities still, we had um, a couple of ethnographers try to experience the intervention alongside the community and try to help us to understand the things that we would never have thought to, to ask about. So they, uh, a couple of ethnographers lived in the community for two to three months prior to the intervention, during it, and afterward. So those are the range of qualitative techniques that we're using. <laughs> Very good. So I think I'll move to the second part of the discussion now. Um, this is really helpful because now people will have a sense of, well, why are you gathering all that data? What, what do you hope that it will <laughs> tell you? Um, isn't all you know whether more kids and moms lived at the end of the day, right? Um, so the uh, second part of the discussion block here is about, uh, it has to be a little bit speculative at this point, unfortunately, because we don't have the final results in and we won't for some time. But we hope to spend about five or 10 minutes just kind of illustrating what the payoff of this mixed methods approach might be if we got different sorts of findings, right? So I'll pose a couple of hypotheticals to uh, each of you and then think yourself about how you would answer this question. Okay, so the first one, hypothetical scenario. I really hope this one doesn't turn out to be the case, but it might, and we're kind of trying to prepare for this. Say the impact evaluation, that is the RCT, shows no average impact on any of the key outcomes. That is, no impact on health utilization, no impact on maternal health, no impact on newborn health, no impact even on uh, individual subjective senses of empowerment, right? What do you think would be the most likely reason for that? I think one of the one of the things that you might realize when you see some of these reasons is that even the best design RCT, in the absence of qualitative information, it would be very hard to explore some of these hypotheses. So you just gave us, uh, thank you very much for doing that, you did some work for us, but you just gave <laughs> us a list of hypotheses to explore uh, in case the RCT reveals no impact. But some of these hypotheses 
are going to be, frankly, untestable. Uh, some of them we could test with the RCT, and some of them there's no way we can test with the RCT, and the richness of the qualitative uh, information is going to be there. So, for example, we think the main reason would be likely be the low power based on the heterogeneity of treatment. I recognize that must come from one of my students here in this room. Uh, although there were four votes, there are more than four students here. Yeah. Uh, so so that, that you might be able to tease out statistically. Um, but, you know, ideas, capabilities, and money for implementation, lack of feedback loop, uh, that would be, I think, very, very hard uh, on the basis of sort of quantitative surveys to be able to uh, at least assess. Uh, and so that, to me, is one of the uh, big reasons why I, I find it so valuable, uh, despite the fact of the artificial antagonistic nature of the debate that we're putting in uh, front of you. Uh, this is why I think it's so valuable to have uh, a team like the one we have. And so far, we've described the quant versus quad, but there are, there are other members of the team that, that bring uh, other perspectives that I think would be very um, hard um, to test any <coughs> of these hypotheses without it. So I think while the RCTs are very good at uh, giving us what is the impact of the program, uh, and I do think uh, that it is, uh, if implemented in design well, the best tool to do that, um, it does fall short in trying to understand what actually happened in the intervention, particularly in an intervention like this that was so open, and why the impacts might have occurred. Um, and so I think that's where the qualitative work um, comes uh, very handy. I don't know if you want to add or open it. To I'd like to open it up because I think there's some really interesting ideas up here, <clears throat> including some that we probably never would have thought of. Um, but let me give you an idea of the kinds that we... Can I get back to this now? <clears throat> that we have, and I could also share... Uh, couple of stories just to show you how differently these communities are engaging with this kind of intervention. Um, I think what maybe while Dan's pulling this up, a couple of things that were surprising. So um, for someone who is really skeptical of the ability of communities to come up with, that's our ethnographer, by the way. <laughs> um, to come up with reasonable ways of improving health. Um, I think it's really notable that in the vast majority of communi communities, there um, are actions occurring that have a plausible connection to the outcomes that we're talking about. And that's really interesting. And I, I think, you know, on the one hand, it's surprising because healthcare is a very complex subject and you need, to some extent, um, a lot of existing knowledge in order to know what's wrong with it and maybe how to fix it. But there are a lot of things that a community could do on their own. Like, it's pretty easy to see if a facility is dirty, if there's a lack of privacy there, if there's no bed, um, if there's no well, if there's no running water, no toilet. These kinds of things are very easily apparent and can potentially be within the community's ability to address on their own. So even something as difficult as getting electricity or a new facility can be within the ability of a community to deal with if they can uh, access existing resources to do that kind of thing. So in many countries, Indonesia included, 
There are local development forums that provide resources to things that communities ask for. And a number of our communities have ended up going to these. In Indonesia, they're called Muzrumbam. And asked for money to build a new facility. And in the large, to, uh, to some degree, these seem to be somewhat successful. And we'll see in the end line, of course, whether that ended up being the case. But that's one thing that's surprising. Uh, another thing that's surprising to people in this field, anyway, is that um, their approaches are so varied. A lot of times, there's a sense that, at least in this world, and maybe this is not a um, very good representation, but in this world of transparency and accountability, that either the right approach is always um, collaboration between providers and the government, or that that relationship is always fraught, and so the only effective route is to be more confrontational or oppositional. And what we saw is a very much more nuanced perspective on the part of these communities, much more based in their understanding of the individuals that they're dealing with and their local political environment, in very su seemingly successful ways navigating um, the, um, the existing environment by trying at least initially to collaborate with most actors um, and then only taking other approaches when those actors prove more resistant, but being very careful about the approach because, after all, these are communities that live with their, the, each other and their officials every day, and so they are going to be very careful about what they try. So that's um, a couple of things that, that were surprising. Not the, what this, I hope, shows is how varied, oh, I can use this, varied these actions are. So here are some of the potential um, things that we have thought about that we can address, hypotheses that we could address about why we might not see any impact. I'm going to leave it up here. It's this kind of complex slide. Just to show that you know, the, 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 the mixed method approach, the integration of this, these methods with the RCT will allow us to say a lot about what occurred in these communities and why or why not we may have seen some effects. I like to tease Dan by saying that at the end of this project, all these communities, all this in involvement, the RCT will give us one line, which is it increased the outcomes or it didn't increase the outcomes. But when it comes to actually saying what happened, the how and the why of it, that's where this kind of stuff comes in. Great. <clears throat> um, OK, so uh, I think you know the people on the T4D team are we all love the project, but we kind of all love it for different reasons. And uh, that's one of the great things about it. I th since there's so many, a uh, large number of students here, I think it's worth kind of highlighting uh, one big question that this project takes a bet on. And not really, a bet's the wrong way to, to put it. But it, it, it does have a certain view of expertise that is not completely self-effacing, right? A completely self-effacing view would say there's no role for the outsider to help in development. It's just not your business, and if you get in, you'll probably do more harm than good, right? That's a completely self-effacing view of expertise with regard to development. There is um, a, a very self-confident view of expertise in development, I would say uh, full of hubris and pride, which is that we experts are capable of telling you what the mechanism is to fix your problem, whether it's health or education or whatever. And we're going to do that however we're going to do that, but we're going to figure out what the answer is for you. And all you need to do is do that thing. And we'll even give you money to do that thing. 
right? Our view or the, the T for D um, intervention and design is a little bit in the middle tending toward the self-effacing view, right? It's the view that outside force and expertise can help construct civic engagement and information where there wouldn't have been those things before, but that we lack the expertise to tell you with precision what you should do. And there could be a couple of different reasons for that, right? One might be a generalization problem, right? You might think, well, there's 100 places that we, we care about in Indonesia, and there is no one-size-fits-all, and that's why we should let people choose. Because if we try to choose one thing, it might work for half the places, but for the other half, it would be completely inappropriate. Right? That's one view, is that you, um, you might get it right some of the time, but there's just a lot of heterogeneity. Right? So that's one view. A more extreme view is that even if we were just intervening in one place, we still couldn't know that they would know better than we do because of local knowledge, right? And I don't think the T4D project kind of takes a position on whether it's the generalization thing or the local knowledge thing that is really, really important, but it's somewhere between those two, right? But what it does take a bet on, which a lot of people would reject, is that outsiders and experts can play a constructive role in a more meta-governance question, right? That we can help answer, uh, does cit more citizen participation in information help? And what does good par citizen participation in information look like? And then once you get that set up, you guys <coughs> figure it out. We're not that expert, right? So that's what the proposition is, just to kind of be clear. And at the Kennedy School, I think that whole larger spectrum is represented, right? And I'm just kind of trying to explain where in that spectrum the T for D project is. And Arkan, can I just ask something? So I think um, the, it's, an, it's an interesting academic question. I would be remiss, though, if I didn't um, mention that this is partly to do, this is a, an intensive a, a project that is supposed to be practical in nature as well. And it grows out of um, a very large field of practice around doing these kinds of interventions that involve, you know, there are dozens, maybe hundreds of civil society organizations around the world that do this kind of thing tons of funding that goes into it, and a lot of, um, of uh, donors and other actors within the development world uh, see it as uh, potential, potentially uh, helping them to address problems that are very difficult to address in other ways, with aspects of health service delivery and, and other sectors as well. Right. So yeah, I mean, I think hopefully that, that the, the goal here is to, you know, is to take a a position and, and test it out, as well as um, provide along the way a lot of information that can be useful to those who practice this. Right. Good. All right. Why don't we open it up? We put a whole lot on the table. People probably have questions, objections, worries. Yeah. Brian. Yeah, thanks for a great presentation. If you could identify yourself. Um, I'm Brian Palmer Rubin. I'm a postdoc here at the, <coughs> the S Center. I'm curious if you've had uh, conversations with people who are engaged in the more uh, economics, orthodox, quantitative RCT pro approaches to looking Many. at information and accountability, and whether whether they've been receptive to your approach, whether there's been some sort of a dialogue, how you see, sort of, you've clearly innovated in the type of innovation, innovation you're doing, the way you're measuring your, your outcomes. Um, is this, do you see a, an impact in the way people do these sorts of programs in the future, or, 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 uh, or, so, or has, there, has there been a fruitful dialogue with a, with a broader RCT community? 
Go ahead. I think dialogue. I'm not sure fruitful. Uh, <laughs> How would you characterize it so far? <laughs> you know, the way that Arkham described the, the trade-offs that we faced at the beginning, uh, we have a steering committee that has more traditional sort of academics on the RCT side. And they, they were not that receptive to the idea that we would let communities choose. They were saying, wait a second, if you want to know if it's better to do confrontation or collaboration, then you should assign two arms, <laughs> two arms of an RCT, one to confrontation, another one to collaboration, and then you compare the two and see what happens. And, uh, you know, I, you know, if I, if I were a, more of a straight sort of uh, RCT person, I would kind of agree with that. But that seems to miss, to me, it seems to miss the point, which is um, if the hypothesis that was advanced here is true, that is that different communities might benefit from different kinds of actions, then doing that would not give you the effect you're interested in. It gives you an effect that's internally valid because you sort of went to these communities and the, and the other ones, but you would be designing an intervention that uh, is not the best intervention to work. And wh what trade-off, I mean, to me that's a trade-off, and I think we located ourselves in the side of the trade-off, let's, let, let's design what we think is the best possible intervention and let's compromise, frankly, on the rigor uh, with which we will be able to tell you which mechanism um, is uh, at play here. Uh, I, you know, I think uh, if I had to guess, I would say um, out of every 100 researchers that are <laughs> sort of true fans of the RCT method, uh, probably 80 would disagree with that choice and uh, say so very publicly. 15 would disagree and um, maybe say so <laughs> not so publicly. And five would agree and not say so publicly. Uh, <laughs> so I think that's where we would be uh, in terms of that community. But it's early days yet. <laughs> uh, how about over here and then Ryan? This is more about quantitative and qualitative methods, but I can't uh, miss how this is more, I know Ricardo Osman and other talk, others talk about this, how this is more about using machine learning in RCTs. Mm -hmm. In some sense, when you say that there's local commitment and there's local knowledge, the whole idea of machine learning is that you use that, and where they talk about, you know, you don't need to take one glove and test it out, but you let the community decide which glove it wants on. Mm -hmm. So. For me, this looks like challenging the idea of RCTs mm -hmm. with like one or like four intervention arms, but allowing <coughs> the intervention to be flexible. I wonder if we are thinking in that direction because I know I was a JPAL RA, and JPAL is trying to do this where they have a machine learning method and they have a strict RCT, mm -hmm. and they are testing how. Uh, I mean, what I want to know is if that's the direction you're looking at RCTs. What is the machine learning supposed to? Oh, you probably know what they're doing. Yeah. So yeah, you should go. If I'm understanding right, the I mean, the machine learning is supposed to at least guess uh, as to what might be best for different communities depending on where they are. It's, uh, it's not so much predictive as much as the fact that you let the community go in that direction, so it predicts what it wants. Yeah. As opposed to you know this researcher from uh, MIT or Harvard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's 
that's interesting because the way you've described it still seems to me that the researcher from Harvard and MIT is uh, the one in charge of predicting. Um, I don't. I, I. I honestly don't know. I mean, certainly that's not the way in which we uh, viewed it. The the one thing I would say is just in terms of uh, the 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 choices that the communities made. I think it would have been very hard to specify a set of choices <laughs> in advance. They did things that we didn't know. So maybe the next version of a treatment like this would be um, subject to machine learning. But I think right now it would be very hard uh, to do. The other thing I would say about machine learning is that these algorithms tend to require a lot of data. And we do have a lot of data. We have but tons of data but only about 400 communities. And that you know, is huge in terms of the amount of work that it created, but it's not huge in terms of the machine learning algorithms. Can I also add, so I think it's an interesting way to think about what we're doing, um, but I would think in at least one very important respect, it's the opposite of what we're doing. Uh, the RCT is uh, very deductive. You're testing one particular relationship between cause and effect. Uh, and we're certainly not doing that, so that is, in that sense, closer to machine learning. But machine learning actually is even less confident in what people think or know and says, <laughs> we have to look at the data and the patterns will emerge, right? But here, the, the bet of the intervention is that any person living in and experiencing these worlds knows a lot more about um, not only what's wrong, but how things are likely to get better than you would know from proposing a hypothesis for that from outside or from collecting information from there and lots of other places and letting a machine tell you what should happen. Good. Ryan, and then. Hi, uh, Ryan Shealy. I'm a faculty member here at the Ash Center. I teach in the development curriculum. I'm a political scientist. Um, so I have a question. You guys have talked a lot about the ways in which this is an outlier within the world of um, RCTs and randomized controlled trials. Um, it's also an outlier within qualitative research and kind of ethnography as well. And, and I, I can imagine, I'd like to hear a little bit about how it, the extent to which you guys have been presenting this design in the qualitative communities, whether it's in more the interpretive political science uh, or anthropology development studies. Because it, it strikes me that you guys are making a case of this mixed methods way to do development. And ultimately, that will, bring, will mean bringing together people who are actually much more extreme than either of you. right? You yeah. guys are each For kind sure. of outliers For in sure. the respective um, methodological sure. practices and disciplines. But in the actual communities of practice, these gulfs in kind of both methodology and kind of the way the world is seen and the views about the world works are pretty wide. And so I'd love to hear kind of how this has been received on the qualitative side and, and how that affects this, uh, this, the prospects for kind of a kind of grand synthesis in uh, the practice of, of development. Yeah, That's so let point. me say two things about that. So the, um, the, the method itself, the, the design principle of it, was to take as a starting point that we know a lot about uh, people and as individuals, and there's been hundreds of years of research on people and how they operate and think. Um, and we and we use a lot of that in thinking about medical research in randomized controlled trials. Okay, that's sort of in, understood in the background of, of most RCTs. Uh, RCTs about communities um, 
forget that we've also spent hundreds of thousands of years trying to learn about communities. And so what we wanted to do was say, how have different social science approaches to understanding communities tried to understand different aspects that might be relevant for this RCT? And you'll see that these methods come from across the social sciences, from anthropology to sociology to political science and economics. For that reason, they don't do justice to any one of them, right? And um, they are you know, certainly going to be uh, dissatisfying to those inside the church of any one particular method. Uh, so in the background of all this, we sort of think of, um, I, I'm a big fan of uh, basic comparative methods back to John Stuart Mill and the method of agreement. So how, how do we understand where this, how all this will come out? Well, the, the things that we'll have the most confidence in, the conclusions that we'll have the most confidence in, are the areas where uh, different social science-minded techniques from different vantage points point in the same direction, right? Um, so by including uh, methods from each of the social sciences, we can say in the end, um, we have really tried very hard to take account of both the things that we could predict in advance might be relevant and the things that we might never have been able to. So, you know, the anthropology to the, to the political science. Um, and anyone looking at our study can say, I prefer to focus simply on the ethnography or simply on the qualitative coding of the meetings or something like that. Um, and we will try to offer that as, um, the, as much as we can uh, applying these techniques rigorously. But where, uh, and this I think is the innovation, where we try to actually incorporate the results into our findings is where we find that there's, co there's a common result from different kinds of techniques. So, uh, you know, we presented this, um, we have qualitative researchers on our, on our uh, advisory committee too. Um, they, they seem to buy that argument, <clears throat> but I think that, you know, with qualitative stuff, sort of, this is a, this, it's, it's the details that are going to reveal it, right? So, uh, what I'm really looking forward to is, here's how we did it, you know, here's where we find ourselves to be confident, and here's where we got information that we also think could be relevant to people who are skeptical of what we found. And it'd be very interesting to see how that resonates. Right. I, I think that's a great <coughs> question, Ryan. I think it's fair to say we have not engaged the qualitative people as much as we've engaged the quantitative RCT to try to figure out where the particular pain points are and disagreement. I mean, I, uh, we've been in some conversation, one conversation where I was talking about the that's project true. with an anthropologist, I, and I think we'll get this a lot, is just... Um, <laughs> an extreme level of skepticism on two grounds. One, that outside intervention is going to have any positive effect at all because these practices are tacit and embedded at a deep, deep level that an outsider could not possibly understand, much less have a positive impact on, right? That's one uh, source of objection. And the second source of objection, I think, will, will likely be that the, you know, even if that weren't true, the treatment is so light that, you know, you guys are there for you know, a few months at most, and then poof. And so what do you expect that actually to do, right? So I think you'll see both, I think we'll see both of those, and it'll be interesting to articulate, you know, in a, in a way that, you know, if the RCT people object to the open menu, what's the more precise form of those objections 
to what we've done. Because, because like you said, what if Jim Scott were to design an RCT that he would not? Right, he just wouldn't. Right, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, how it fleshes out. I think that'll be really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I study economics and anthropology, so I think this is perfect. But um, <laughs> I was wondering, when, um, so when you're measuring things like community development or social participation, often you run into um, like biases, like social desirability bias, and yeah. measuring these things objectively. And on the quantitative side, you have people doing lab in the field experiment and game theory questions and things like that. And on the qualitative side, they, you, know, you fully live with the communities. A longer time horizon lets you get break down some of those things. But on a project like this where you have both angles, right. how do you make those judgment calls? How do you decide which one has more rigor in terms of presenting it? And like, how do you make those choices? Are you worried about social desirability bias Just getting people to a bad intervention or that we're not able to detect the social? Neither. I think in making choices about how you measure it, if you're only doing it qualitatively, you'll have certain like disclaimers. This is the assumptions we're making. And if you do it quantitatively, you'll have different ones. So how are you balancing those two mm. and just in the way you are measuring it, however that is? Yeah, that's interesting because um, had, uh, that's a great question. I hadn't uh, thought of this, yeah. bit, but uh, you know, we, th by its nature, we didn't apply the same qualitative methods to all 100 uh, sort of treatment communities. So we could look, although they were not totally randomly selected, where the communities where we did the ethnographic study um, differ from the other communities in terms of some of the outcomes we are uh, observing. But I think, I mean, if there was one message unifying um, everything that we have <coughs> talked about today is that um, there's no, there's no perfect method, and each method brings its strengths and weaknesses. And kind of the stand of our project team is that by combining them, uh, we reach a better understanding uh, of the program than we would reach otherwise. Having said that, uh, your question points to uh, being perhaps, well, both your question and Ryan's question point to being perhaps clearer uh, on the assumptions uh, that we're making uh, in combining. Uh, I think if we were from a single discipline, we would be somewhat blind uh, to the weaknesses of our method, or maybe not blind, but just sort of say this is the best we can do and that's it. Uh, I think in some way, we believe that combining them uh, overall provides more strength but it does mean that we're combining also the weaknesses of all the methods. So the economists, the political scientists, <laughs> each of them is going to come at us from a different yeah, side. Right. Uh, I sure, think it's sure. fitting that we are the Kennedy School, which is an interdisciplinary school and is uh, you know, one of the institutions involved along with R4D uh, in this project. And it's, I think it's fitting for us to, to take this time. Great. I think we have time for just uh, one. I'll take two more, Scott, and then over here. Thank it's you. too no, much this fun. This is really a great project. Um, and I'm, I, I, I would buy the, 80, I would buy the, um, the, the, the heterodox approach to the randomized controlled trial. I want to know if the 80, 5% is based on a scientific sample. <laughs> no. Um, Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> um, the one thing that 
you know, the, my bias would be on the qualitative side. I mean, to me, the, the most important information that the qualitative information could reveal is what Steve said the second time he talked about the purpose of the qualitative data. That is the, the how and why. And, you know, you could approach gathering qualitative data in a very, you know, kind of undisciplined way. My bias, you know, and, and this might be too late to be helpful to you, would be the opposite. To collect the qualitative data, thinking about, you know, what information will be most useful in understanding the how and why. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, I mean, um, I, I think a lot of ethnographic information could be not very revealing mm -hmm. at all mm -hmm. if it doesn't help answer those questions. Right. Um, and then just a little coda to my comment, which um, to which I'd love a question. Jason Seawright, I think, is the best person in political science at combining qualitative and quantitative data. And he just published a book on this issue. So um, I haven't read the book, but I've read a lot of his work on this issue. So it's probably worth looking at. Well, well, Thank you. Great. Thanks. We'll check. Definitely. We'll okay. say that we, we definitely did uh, approach all of the qualitative methods with the goal of trying to understand the things that we thought we needed to understand, with the exception of the ethnography which is a small part of it. But everything else is really trying to break down the hypothesized causal chain, or yeah. many, many chains in this case, um, and try to understand every little piece of them, as well as leaving a lot of the communities without this kind of qualitative data gathering because, as Dan just mentioned, um, and as you were saying earlier, there can be social desirability bias in just having somebody there observing and Hawthorne effects in the RCT world, right? So we, um, right. yeah, that, that was very much the way that we approached it. Right. And thanks very much for the reference yeah. as well. we'll check it. Last question. Uh, my name is Siam Mahmoud, I'm a research manager at the Kennedy School. Um, I have worked previously uh, on, a, uh, on both the kind of intervention design for, uh, for uh, uh, international development projects, as well as on the uh, M&E side, so monitoring evaluation. Um, and, and it's been my observation that often those two groups are separated. It's not the folks that design, not necessarily the folks that are going to implement and stay along with that. So the beauty of this project is that it lives in a research institution and is designed by researchers uh, as opposed to kind of practitioners and more development uh, professionals. So with that in mind, um, on the monitoring and evaluation side, you know, you see more and more the need for mixed method evaluation, but all too often you don't see how the, two, the quants and the qualitative are integrated, or uh, uh, in practice it's kind of you do, the, you do the quants and then you do a little bit of the qualitative uh, uh, data gathering to inform or interpret the results. So it sounds like you guys are, are doing, a, doing it much more rigorous, rigorously, and my question is, how do, you, how, how do you integrate the two different sets of data? Uh, how do you work together? And given that you've elaborated on the tension between these two fields, but how, do you, how does one set of data inform the other? Do you, is it used from the beginning when you're defining a lot of this stuff, or is it just simply in, to help with the interpretation of the results later? So Go for it. This is a great 
kind of opportunity yeah. for closing comments here and the so closing comments reconciliation. Uh, that uh, great question. <laughs> I, I take a, a few parts of the question. The the first one is uh, the I want to be clear. The intervention really wasn't designed by researchers at a research institution. Uh, in fact, a big part of our team uh, is uh, in the results for development organization, and uh, especially uh, Courtney is a practitioner who has been uh, involved in the design of uh, many of these interventions. More importantly, uh, the intervention was co-designed with the civil society organization in the field uh, who helped uh, do this. And there were many, many, many meetings. I was <laughs> only part of a few of them uh, that led to the development of this um, intervention. So that, that, that PowerPoint with the funnel, uh, that was blood, sweat, and tears for, for a over time. a year. Um, so the, the second uh, thing I would say is uh, you write that uh, uh, the project does try to combine. I think at a very practical level, it requires people from different disciplines so they can bring their discipline to the table, but uh, it also requires openness to the other disciplines and willingness, frankly, to compromise with your own discipline. Like, uh, I don't know if the numbers that I told you are true, but if they are, uh, I'd probably be commulgated, commulgated <laughs> from the RCT community after this project. Uh, so I, I do think it requires an, an openness. In terms of how we actually do it, I think a lot of uh, what we saw today were things about the design of the project and how we've been collecting data. Uh, but when this project is all <coughs> said and done, uh, we invite you, we hope you're, you're still here at the Kennedy School, and we invite you to see how we actually combine uh, all the data. I mean, it really is, de it, the, the instrument, even the, the pre and post wouldn't be the same if it, the, the, even those quantitative instruments bring both sensibilities together. It's hard yeah. to, it's a great question. It's just hard to tease out all of the different ways in which it's mixed because yeah. it's the relationships. In the and, and I know we're almost out of time. I, I think we've been talking about sort of a version of the RCT that's pretty extreme, which is like where we, we just go and estimate the impact. I think it's been increasing interest in the field and understanding mechanisms. I think, and, and a lot yeah. of researchers are using qualitative methods. Uh, I do think we are probably uh, at the extreme in terms of how the methods were both used at the beginning. Generally, what happens is the RCT uses some of the qualitative to complement, but the RCT is very much at the center. Here, the RCT is not very much at the center. Here, the RCT is an important component of a bigger research project. Yeah, let me just add two things to that. I think. Um, very concretely, the way that they will integrate in the end line is that the, that long list of explanations up here will provide some indication of the how and the why. And uh, in addition, um, so that's kind of the, the backward uh, look. Uh, in addition, though, because we have all this qualitative data now and won't be doing the end line for another 12 months or so, we have an opportunity to figure out what we're learning from the qualitative side and then verify it in the RCT. So the, the qualitative can provide additional predictions that can be incorporated into the end line and then verified in the larger sample of communities. 
And I think because we're doing, we started with this mixed method approach, use the qualitative, this is you know, to Dan's credit that he, um, we, we built this in. Um, because we're going to have results early, uh, the, even the RCT result, the endline result, will be much richer and more uh, appropriate to the situation in these communities than it would have otherwise. I hope so, anyway. Um, so that, you know, and, and for, for me, I, one of the things that's been surprising, I mentioned it at the very start, is uh, how useful it has been to have the RCT as a kind of organizing framework for all of, all of this. So the RCT is 100 communities randomly selected to a qualitative researcher that's 100 case studies. And um, that's one of the ways in which it's, it's wonderful. And how often does a qualitative researcher get to work with such an enormous sample of case studies? Um, I think also it's very, I have become convinced of, of how interestingly appropriate it is for this kind of work, where a civil society organization or somebody who's in, um, a set of practitioners who are interested in something that's policy relevant want to go in and actually ex try something out. Um, in order for it to have uh, the plausibility of being generally helpful, you should be able to try it out in a lot of places. You know, you, and I don't know if it's 100 places, but it's got to be a lot. And what the RCT does, because of the scale, is it forces you to try something out that you might otherwise be able to very easily cherry pick you know, a couple of different communities where this would work. And it, you can't do that with the RCT, <laughs> and so it keeps, you know, it keeps. Honestly, it keeps the qualitative pretty much more honest uh, than than uh, it, it's easy to be otherwise. Oh, that's great. Well, thank thank you guys very much. I'm afraid we have to wrap it up now, but it's been an extremely rich discussion, and I hope that what you take away from this is the that it's important to be open to many many ways of seeing and understanding, and that. Um, it's hard work to do that because it's easiest to see things through your own shoes, but it's just much, much richer when you can combine other people's ways of seeing into your own.